Happy New Year. Six days into 2018. Um, thank you, Pastor Jafet, for your kind words. Um, greetings from Portland, Oregon, uh, where I serve as general counsel for the North Pacific Union. Uh, our territory covers uh, six conferences, five states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Alaska. Um, uh, our sixth conference up there is uh, the Upper Columbia Conference in, in Eastern Washington. Um, my claim to fame, as Pastor Jafet mentioned, is 30 years ago, I went to high school at Auburn Avis Academy with a Becky Crooker, who actually looks younger today than she did 30 years ago. So, Becky, you gotta share a se your secret with, uh, with us. Um, January 6th. New Year's resolution time. Anyone make a New Year's resolution? Okay, some. Anybody resolve not to make any resolutions? <laughs> uh, okay, so I don't make resolutions, but what I do is I renew a resolution that I made 18 years ago. 18 years ago, I made a resolution that in everything, I would look for God's blessing. And I meant everything. I mean everything. If I had a day where nothing happened, that was a blessing. <laughs> but I'm taking a step further. I'm now resolving to look for Jesus in everything. And just like all resolutions, exercising, uh, eating right, whatever resolution it is, um, it, it enriches your life. But like resolutions of exercising and eating right, it takes discipline. It's hard stuff. So that's my resolution, um, again, for, for 2018. Um, it's a privilege to uh, start, this, start this series uh, with you. Uh, so before we get started, two, two disclosures I need to make to you. Um, I'm a lawyer, of course, so I need to make, do this. Uh, my first disclosure... My first disclosure is that I'm a lawyer. Uh, I am not a preacher. I am not a theologian. Now, I know that this may come as a point of terror to some of you, um, maybe, maybe a point of relief for a lot of you. Uh, some of you think, oh, man, a lawyer's going to be preaching to me today. Oh, man. Uh, the reason why I make this disclosure is because what I'm going to share with you uh, does not come from any formal theological knowledge or any theological training. Uh, my message this morning is really from my own personal study of the book of Acts. And this is really just my personal Bible study that you just happen to get to tag along with today. My second disclosure is that Acts is not my favorite book of the Bible. It probably, like most of Christianity... Um, you know, you, you, have, you have the story and majesty of the Gospels, right? I mean, the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And then here comes Acts. In the very first chapter, Jesus says, you know what, guys? Uh, it's your turn now. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. See you later. Right? And, and I've always had a hard time with that. Um, but here's the beauty of Acts. It's still all about Jesus. You have a group of men that have seen Jesus live, die, 
and live again, and they're now going out to spread the word. And if you think about it, we are a direct product of what happens in Acts. And we are a continuation of what happens in Acts. So it's a perspective of, of the exalted Jesus that I, I never examined before. And so I am blessed to share this with you because I think the message is really more a lesson for me than it is a message for you. So I know that you just concluded a series, What Child Is This? So the child that was born in a manger, taught in the temple, healed the sick, raised the dead, died for you and me, came back to life for you and me, is now preparing to go back to his heavenly father. And he's about to do something very special for his disciples. So before we dive into the word, let's pray. Father God, we invite your presence here. We thank you for the words in the, of scripture, but the picture of Jesus and Acts. We ask your spirit to open our minds and our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna take you back to a memory that I think all of us have. The day you learned how to ride a bicycle. And I think for all of us, the components of this memory are the same. Okay, you basically have five things. You have a bike, you have the excitement, you have the fear, but what else do you have? The day you learn how to ride a bike. You had a teacher. You had a guide. And you had a push. I remember, I remember the day. I remember the day I learned how to ride a bike. Uh, my, it was a Sabbath afternoon. It was sunny. My, uh, my bike was this um, uh, Schwinn banana seat bike with the high handlebars, and my teacher was my grandfather. And we had been working on this for a couple weeks, wobbly, falling down, and I had this habit of looking down at my feet, making sure I was pedaling right. And he kept saying, no, don't, don't look at your feet, look up, look up. And finally, on one occasion, we were going, he gave me the push, and off I went. Question. After I took off on my own, was my grandfather no longer involved? In fact, as I kept going, I've realized that my grandfather was actually running beside the bicycle. In Acts 1, we have a picture of Jesus gathered with his disciples, and he's about to give them the push. And I can only imagine what Jesus is feeling as he's sitting with his disciples on the outskirts of Jerusalem, having a picnic with them. I'm sure he's excited. 
But I also imagine Jesus is feeling introspective and probably sad because this is the last earthly moments that he is spending with his disciples. I want to read the passage with you to get the context. And I think in this passage, we see, three, we see Jesus giving us three things. Instruction, an admonition, and a commission. Acts chapter one, this is uh, page uh, 1006 in your Bibles, in the Pew Bible. Uh, Acts chapter one. In the first book, and so this is the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he, had, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented, presented himself alive to them after his suffering, so his death, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, here is, here's the instruction. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Here's the admonition. Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you, here's the commission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the rest of the story talks about Jesus blessing his disciples, and as, as in a moment of confusion and awe and wonder, Jesus ascends into heaven and two, disciples, or two angels appear, and they tell the disciples, he will return the same way you saw him leave. Let's break this down. Instruction. In verse four, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Let's stop right there. Notice that this is not a request, it is an order. But it's not just any order. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples to put their lives in danger. Jerusalem is a dangerous place because Jesus was a dangerous man. Just 40 days before, just a month before, Jesus had been arrested and executed and the same leaders that wanted Jesus dead were still around. And so the disciples, by extension, were dangerous men. And Jesus is telling his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. Now let's, let's think about this for a second. When Jesus tasks us to further the kingdom of God, it is never in spiritually safe places. When, te- when Jesus asks us, orders us, to further the kingdom of God, it is never in spiritually safe places. And sometimes, probably not in physically safe places either. 
The kingdom of God is where Jesus resides and reigns in the hearts and minds of those that love him. And if we're going to further the kingdom of God, we have to go where the kingdom of God is not. But notice what else he tells them. He tells them to wait. He tells them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, patience is a virtue, but patience is the hardest virtue. We are impatient creatures by nature. The human condition is just not made to wait. We want things now. We have things to do. We have places to go. Um, Pastor Jessica, thank you, for your, thank you for your message today because I'm going to kind of piggyback on that. Boys and girls, do you know what this is? No? <laughs> How many of you, just not long ago, waited and waited and waited for Christmas to come? Okay, good. Adults, too. This is an advent calendar. And what you do is you, you get this at December, on December 1st, and on the 1st of December, you open, you open door number one, and you get a piece of candy. Amen. And there's 24 of these. And it culminates on Christmas Day. Now, my children would get these for Christmas, would get these for December. And what would they do? They would just open up all the they just open up all the doors and and then is it Christmas already? Does that make Christmas come any faster? It is the longing the expectation, the anticipation. That is what Jesus wanted his disciples to experience because in the longing expectation was prayer. Prayer of the expectation of the Holy Spirit to come and empower them. It was a fulfillment of his promise because if you think about it, greatness rarely, if ever, is instantaneous, but is a journey. So Jesus gives his instructions. Stay in, stay in Jerusalem and wait. And then the disciples get excited, but they get excited for all the wrong reasons. So now we go to verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, I know that verse 8, the, the commissioning of the Holy Spirit is the centerpiece of Acts, but this is the passage that spoke the most to me. This, this is what I identified with the most because what this admonition does is identifies the obstacle. It identifies the spiritual obstacle because if you look at it, the disciples are finally asking, they ask Jesus, essentially, are you going to stage a takeover of the government? 
Because think about it, his entire life, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God and to the disciples, now it's time. It's our time. And here comes the admonition in verse seven. It's not about you. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. God, work, God operates on his schedule, on his time, on his terms, period. So here we see, again, the human condition of the disciples come out. It was all about political ambition and personal status. Um, because if Jesus establishes a political kingdom, then who gets powerful positions and um, offices of influence? The disciples, right? So this is why it spoke to me, this is why this has spoke to me um, the most. Um, as, as Becky can attest, um, I am a political creature. I, I absolutely love politics. I just can't, I can't get enough of the, the campaigning, the electioneering, uh, public policy, uh, the, the, the dramatics of it. In fact, um, I can identify with this guy. Uh, not, no, not, not, not Kevin Spacey. <laughs> but the, 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 uh, uh, the man that he plays on the show House of Cards. On the show House of Cards, it is a story of Frank Underwood whose blind ambition to become president of the United States um, uh, basically uh, causes him to do unspeakable things uh, where he finally assumes the office, the highest office of the land. I was that kid. I was the kid who marched around school um, you know, in third grade saying, I'm gonna be president of the United States someday. And so in 2010, I actually did it. Uh, I, I'm not, I didn't run for president. Um, I, I ran for the Oregon State Legislature, a seat in the Oregon State Legislature. And this is, this is what it looks like to have your name on the ballot. This was probably, this was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But it was one of the most rewarding and one of the biggest blessings of my life. As I, was, as I was in this exercise of running for public office, I surrounded myself with, um, with five men. Five men that I respected personally, professionally, uh, and spiritually. And we got, together, we got together weekly to pray. One of them, early on, said, in fact, it was so early, I mean, I, I hadn't even filed to run yet. He said, you've got to be doing this for the right reasons. You have to be doing this to serve your community and make this a better place for your voters. Because if this is about you, it's over. This can't be about you. And I made a pledge all through my campaign that if this political race suddenly all became all about me, we we're gonna pull the plug. It was over. That's a humbling experience. And that is, that is what the disciples 
the disciples were. They were excited. They were excited that political power was finally within their reach, and Jesus finally says to them, sets them straight. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about exalting Jesus, about furthering his kingdom. Now, the lesson is that there is nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition is the motivation that drives us. But it, be ha- but it has to be focused on the right place. So I ask, I pause to, ask, to have you ask, what obstacle is it that stands in the way of you receiving the blessing of the Holy Spirit? What is it that needs to be cleared out? Because the path has to be clear in order for the commissioning to take place. And so Jesus continues in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 8 is what the book of Acts is all about. It is the mission statement. It is the anchor that has to go in the ground to keep us from swaying this way and that. This is what the book of Acts is about. Right here at the beginning of Acts, we have the mission, the goal, and the purpose of the book. And that is, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in Luke 24, the, the words are actually, you'll be clothed in power. And you'll be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in verse 8, we have basically a, a three-step plan. The power, the purpose, and the plan. What is the Holy Spirit? Now I know that through the series, and Pastor Javit will, will, will do a deep dive in this. But a lot of us are very linear about, um, about the Trinity. You know, we have you know, God the Father, yeah, we, got, we understand that. Jesus the Son, yeah, we got that. Holy Spirit, okay, you know, yeah, we got that. Um, uh, there are others that you know, may elevate the Holy Spirit to where it is the only point, the only power uh, of the Trinity. But what we know is that the Trinity, or the um, Holy Spirit, is an actual individual part of the Godhead. A distinct individual. In John 6, 16, 14, Jesus actually refers to the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity that is not to make much of himself, but to make much of Jesus. So with that, the scripture is clear that as the Holy Spirit comes upon those and dwells inside of those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does the work of illumination, reveals to the heart that it needs a savior, and if your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, that is where the Holy Spirit dwells inside. And throughout this journey in Acts, we will see that the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit falls, and men are saved. And yet, and yet, 
Jesus tells his disciples, who already have the Holy Spirit at that level, that they have to wait to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word that's used in Scripture is dunamis. Power in Greek. That is the root word where we have the word dynamite. We are talking about spiritual dynamite. It's a supernatural power, a, a power that enables us to do something that the human condition cannot do by itself. So can you imagine being empowered with this? I can only imagine that it's, that it's similar to, now I, I was thinking about, well, you know, what, what was the one time in my life that I felt like I had power? And I thought about this, so this was early in my legal career. Um, I was working, I was working um, in, a, uh, in a small office in an immigration law practice, and we had, we had a client who uh, had been detained by immigration, but uh, went before an immigration judge, and his uh, immigration judge allowed him, uh, released him uh, from detention. Well, the day went by, another day went by, another day went by, and he wasn't released. So when this happens, um, in, in legal terms, you file a writ of habeas corpus, which is, habeas corpus being um, ho literally hold, holding the body. The government has to justify why they're holding somebody. So we went to federal court. We went to federal court and filed a writ of habeas corpus to have the, uh, at that time, the Immigration Naturalization Service uh, to release our client. We got the writ, we went to the detention center, and we presented the judge's writ to the detention officer. He looked at it and he said, yeah, I'm not gonna, not, not gonna let your guy go. Well, what do you do? Well, we went back to see the judge. And we said, Your Honor, uh, we took this downtown, uh, and they're not honoring your writ. And he said, they're not. Hold on a moment. He got on the phone, and about five minutes later, two men government agents, I mean, just as you are imagining them right now, like right out of the movies, showed up at the door. And the judge says to us, this is Deputy Smith and Deputy Jones. They are U.S. Marshals. They will go with you to the Immigration Detention Center. And so my boss and I got in the car, and we followed uh, this car with two U.S. Marshals to the detention center, and we ran up the steps, and we were waving our, our writ, and I can guarantee you that I felt powerful at that moment with these two government agents shoving this judge's writ into the, uh, the immigration officer's face, saying, let our guy go. That was, that, that is the kind of power that I, that I imagine what, uh, uh, what they're ex expecting here. But the power to do what? To proclaim and be 
Jesus witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to ends of the earth. And as I mentioned before, Jesus does not mention these places casually. These are dangerous places. Samaria. If you study the history of Jews and Samaritans, it's a pretty ugly history. And let's just face it, there was just overt racism between Jews and Samaritans. That's, that's what makes the story of the Good Samaritan so powerful. And to go into Samaria and talk about Jesus, dangerous places. Yet Jesus tells them to go and tell everyone about him regardless of race, religion, age, gender, social class, belief system, to tell them what they have, they have experienced firsthand. And it reminds me that we should always preach the gospel, but use words if necessary. So now Jesus gives them the commission. But there's one more thing that is not enumerated in Acts 1 that I think is important here. And we find that at the end of Acts, in Acts 28. And this is a com component of community. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't only work through us, but works through the community of other people. So this is Acts, cha Acts chapter 28. Uh, this is page uh, 1038. Um, I will start, I'm going to start at uh, verse 14. Okay, so the background in this. Paul is returning to Rome. Paul had been arrested and charged with the crime, essentially the crime of sedition. He had brought Gentiles into the temple. You're not supposed to do that. The Jewish leader said, okay, we're, we're charging you with this crime. Paul now has an advantage because Paul is not only a Jew, but he's a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens have the privilege of doing, directly appealing their charge to Caesar. And so this is why Paul is returning to Rome. By the way, trivia question, does anyone remember who, this, who the Caesar was? Nero. Nero. Crazy times in the Roman Empire, I'm telling you. There we found, verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Paul is traveling to Rome and a group of men hear that he's coming, and they travel 30 miles 
40 miles to meet up with Paul. And it gave him courage. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that, there are no cars, there are no trains at that time. I mean, they, a full day's, I mean, just imagine if, if we said, Paul is coming, he's in Denver, let's walk over there to meet him. I mean, that's pretty incredible. But can you imagine the surge of courage and strength and spiritual upliftment that Paul had when he saw those men on the horizon? And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him because he was, he was still under house arrest. And then he meets with the Jewish leaders and, and the people, and, he, and even, in that, even in that confined, shackled condition, he continues to preach the gospel. There's power in the body of Christ. There's power in the community of Christ. Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am with you. So what we do together empowers the Holy Spirit to empower us. And so that's why I believe community is part of this equation in Acts of the instruction, the admonition, the commission. You know, um, I... Um, I have a good friend in, in Portland. His name is Greg Woldridge. Um, he, he's a pilot for uh, Federal Express. Um, that's actually a semi-retired job for him because you know what he did before? Uh, he flew in the Navy. Uh, he flew for an elite team that you may have heard of called the Blue Angels. Uh, not only that, um, he was the lead pilot of the Blue Angels. I mean, he was the one who choreographed, taught, gave instruction to the, the team. And on every, on every command, um, every, um, every instruction, it had to be precision tight. I mean, because if you've ever seen them, I mean, they're flying within feet of each other, right? But of all the things that he's done in his flying career, he says that there is nothing more exciting than taking off from an aircraft carrier. The anticipation, the, the longing, the yearning of, of taking off. And he says that when you're sitting in that jet fighter, there is a man who's standing in the front. It's called the ramp marshal. And if you've seen videos of, if you've seen videos of um, planes taking off aircraft carriers, you see that one guy, yellow helmet, and he's gyrating all over, all over the place, right? And he says, as, as you're sitting in that jet fighter, you wait for three things, and your heart is pounding in your chest. What happens is the ramp marshal does this. Remove the chocks. 
The chocks are those big yellow blocks underneath the wheels that keep the, the plane from moving. And when he sees this, he knows that it's about to happen. And after the chocks are removed, the deck marshal, the ramp marshal, kneels down, touches the deck, and points to the ocean. And the plane takes off. Today, at the beginning of a new year, Jesus is standing before us and telling us to remove the chocks. Because we are about to embark in a great journey, not only to study about what the disciples have, have done, but how, as direct products of Acts, we can continue the ministry of Jesus in Acts. Take out whatever obstacles there are so you can receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, go. Go.